Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So we continue the series called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and uh, I'll get into what that's about as we go on. But I just wonder if, uh, if I mean, we all get invitations, right? We just went through a season, we're, we're in wedding season, and I realize that weddings are different now than they've ever been. We've just gone through graduation time when the kids didn't really get the full scale deal like they normally do, and they didn't get to walk across the stage, which, you know, we feel bad for them for that, and they, but they did get their open houses. I went to a couple of, of uh, you know, graduation open houses. I've been to a wedding this summer, and so we get those invitations, and sometimes it's a, you know, it's a formal thing in the mail. Sometimes it's something that we get by email. You might get an evite. Maybe somebody sends you a text. But whenever that happens, one of the things that's going on there is you've got a decision to make. Am I going to go? Do I want to go? <laughs> Who's going to be there? Do I have space on my calendar? Am I even going to be in town that weekend? There's a lot, you know, we go through this grid of things of trying to figure out whether or not we want to uh, or will be able to attend whatever ceremony we've been invited to. In our message today, uh, Jesus accepts an invitation to someone's house, and it's interesting that Jesus gets the invitation, and it's, a, it's also interesting that he decides to attend. So I want to pick up in, in Luke chapter 7. Luke is all about, uh, we're going to be in Luke for the whole series, because Luke seems to highlight this idea of, of dinners, and, and Jesus is constantly eating with people, and Luke kind of picks up on that and, and highlights that. So we're in Luke chapter 7 today. If you have your Bible with you, there'll be a couple of things for you to highlight and underline maybe. We're going to pick up at Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, we aren't given a name, we're just given a title, this man is a Pharisee. But later in the meal, Jesus is going to call him by name, and his name is Simon. But to begin, the word Pharisee is used, and it's used twice. Luke wants us to fully understand what kind of background and perspective this man has. And so, two times in the first verse, and four times in the first four verses, Luke is going to identify this man as a Pharisee. They were passionately uh, fanatical about um, obeying the commands, passionately fanatical. They were equally fanatical about avoiding anyone who didn't obey the commands. If if they uh, felt like you weren't someone that kept all of the commands, they didn't really want to have anything to do with you. Um, These are the words that you would associate with a Pharisee. One of the words is purity, they were doing the best, their, their best to, to keep their life pure. The second word is the word separation. They were afraid that they would be contaminated by you. They didn't want to be close to you. They, did, they definitely didn't want to eat with you, okay? And so Jesus receives this invitation from this Pharisee, which is kind of a shock that he would even invite Jesus. And it's also shocking that Jesus uh, accepts the invitation to go to his house, which just basically says Jesus came for everybody, didn't matter who you were. And there's an interesting word that I read a moment ago, and I wonder if you caught it. Verse 36, again, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, and what is that word? Reclined. He reclined at the table. Now, that's not how we do it. We come in, we pull up a chair, we sit upright. Our our tables are somewhere in the neighborhood of 34 to 36 inches high, 
and, and we are accustomed to eating kind of up off of the floor. And, um, you know, there are some cultural details that we're going to talk about today that uh, you may or may not know. And I, I, I just, this, first of all, this story that we're looking at today is one of my absolute favorites in the whole Bible. And um, I, even as much as familiar as I am with this story, I learned a lot just getting ready to teach you this morning. But we need to understand this stuff because I want you to be able to paint this picture in your head. I had a a Bible college professor that used to refer to our sanctified imaginator. I want you to be able to use your sanctified imaginator and, and envision this story as it unfolds. You know, often people, when they eat, not always, or when they would eat in Jesus' day, they would recline at a table, and the table would be low to the floor, uh, there might be some sort of couch, but it would be very low. Cushions and pillows would be on the floor, and you would kind of sit around it as you see here. This is called a triclinium uh, arrangement, and tri meaning three, and cline, which from which we get the word recline, and you would have a triclinium, and that's how people would, would have dinners. This allowed for servers to come and access the table and be able to give you the food that you needed and refresh your drinks and and things like that. And so your feet would be on the outside, your head would be toward the middle, toward the table, and so everyone's feet would kind of go away from the table. The second cultural element of our story this morning has to do with the house. Now when I talk about a house, you probably have an English, an American version of house. I just went out on Google and just Googled house. And this is what came back. I picked a just, you know, modest cute little house. But there's some things that we, you know, some of us live in the city, some of us live out in the country, some of us live on farms. I mean, we, you know, we all over, but, but for most of us, when we think about a house, we kind of think about the same things. We, there's a street and there's usually a yard of some kind. You may or may not have, there may be a, a sidewalk involved, but not always. And then there's a front door and you walk through the front door and you're in the house. Now that's kind of how we do it in America. If you were to go to the old country in Europe, there are some places where you would find that look like this. There's a street and then there's very little sidewalk and there's a house. There's a door and you walk in the door and you're in the house. For most people or a lot of people in Jesus' time, that's probably uh, a similar arrangement to that. But once in a while, they would have, you would, you, if you walked into the house through the door, there would be a courtyard not, not all houses had them, probably more for the upper middle class and the upper class that would have had this, this like courtyard arrangement. Now, this is a cutaway drawing of a first century house in Palestine. And at the bottom you have the street, you walk into that door, and then there's this courtyard, and there's a public space. This, this is a public space, but it's kind of a private space. You're at the house, but you're not necessarily in the house. If you ordered a pizza, this is, where the, this is where you meet the pizza delivery guy, right? If you had a UPS driver that was going to drop off a package, he would have no problem. He wouldn't feel like he needs to knock on that, that entrance there at the bottom. He would just open the door, go in, and set down the package and leave. If you had kids and they were going to play with the neighborhood kids, more than likely they would play inside this courtyard area. It was sizable. They could run. They could play. And then you could see the different rooms off to the side. I especially like the idea that this picture includes a stable, um, which you kind of want to laugh at, but that's probably pretty accurate. In fact, um, I don't know that the arrangement would be identical, but when you read about Jesus being born 
at the, at the manger, it's possible that there was some kind of arrangement like this going on. Okay, so um, often, in particular in the case of a meal, especially if you had a guest of distinction like a visiting rabbi, the neighbors in your town would kind of filter into the courtyard area, and I, I can't imagine us doing this, but, but you would have a dinner, you can see the triclinium up at the top, and I've got it circled, but people would come into your courtyard, and they would stand off at a distance and watch your dinner unfold, as you had dinner with your guests. Anybody want to, doesn't that sound weird to you? That seems really strange to us, but that's kind of how they did it. And so, you know, this courtyard was this blending of, of public and private space. And at this point, you're thinking to yourself, Brett, enough about the houses. I mean, how much can, do you need to tell us before? It's, it's important because um, it has everything to do with what we're going to talk about today. The way this house is arranged, the customs involved with the way people ate, the way people stood off at a distance and watched other people dine. It's, it's important to understand the story that we're going to look at this morning. So you have all this going on, and it, 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 if someone's in this courtyard space and they manage to cross the threshold into the dining space, you now have what we would describe as a party crasher, right? And so something is about to happen that opens the door for Jesus to have a very teachable moment, and that teachable moment centers around the topic of, of forgiveness, specifically the fallout of forgiveness. You say, Brett, what are you talking about? <clears throat> what I mean is if God has forgiven you, there's fallout. If, if God has forgiven you, what now? Something, there's a response to the forgiveness that we experience, um, what does for being forgiven lead to? You know, I've been forgiven, now what do I do? What is the fallout of forgiveness? And our story today is going to go a long way to answer that question. Um, there are three parts to my message this morning, and part one is meals and mission. Meals and mission. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we'll read it again. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, in Luke's portrayal of the gospel, this happens a lot. Jesus is eating with people a lot. And we said last week, it, it, the, the book of Luke is ripe with these stories where Jesus eats with people. And it, it seems that Jesus was in, you know, looking to have meals with people where he could encourage some kind of spiritual movement. Um, a little Bible trivia for you this morning. You know, let me stay right off the top. I stink at Bible trivia. You're like, Brett, you're a pastor. I know, but I stink at Bible trivia. And I can't win when you play Bible trivia games. If I'm good at it, everybody goes, well, he's a pastor. He should be good at it. And if I'm not good at it, everybody goes, he's a pastor? So I just don't play Bible trivia, right? I just don't want to play Bible trivia. But we're going to play this morning. So there's three different times that Jesus uses this expression, for the Son of Man came. He uses it three different times, and then he finishes it three different ways. And I wonder if you know any of, or if you know all three of the, the ways that Jesus finishes this sentence for the Son of Man came. The first time, he is with Zacchaeus. And he says when he's with Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus goes to this, this tax collector. He's a top, top tax collector. He goes to his house and, and uh, you know, he's, he's having dinner with him, and this is 
I mean, people lose their minds that, that Jesus went and had lunch or had dinner with this tax collector. And he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. I'm on a rescue mission. Nobody has gone beyond my reach. I've come for everybody. A second time when he uses this phrase, the Son of Man came, he's with his disciples. The disciples are having this conversation about who's the most important, right? Like the pecking order. Who's, where does everybody fall in the pecking order? And Jesus chimes in and he says in Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's one of the ways it's used. And then here's the third one. And I wonder if anybody came up with this. For the son of man came eating and drinking, <laughs> right? I, that's kind of different. You know, you could say that the first one, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. You could say that was Jesus' mission. You could say that the third one there, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you could say that's the strategy to the mission because you see Jesus doing this over and over and over again, trying to reach for some positive spiritual movement around a shared table. And we asked this last week, I'll ask it again, if it seemed to be important to Jesus, should it not maybe be important to us to try to meet with people together around a table, shared meal for some spiritual movement. Deep conversations <clears throat> can happen over shared meals. It is my experience that deep conversations often lead to spiritual conversations. And a lot of times it's happened and I didn't even realize it was happening. You know, we get into this deep thing and I'm with somebody and next thing you know, we're talking about God and we're talking about how God moves and what he does and Jesus and it's just really kind of cool. So, um, it most often happens when you lump a few things together, when you lump deep levels of caring and, and really good food and some good conversation. When you can put those three things together, you have a recipe for something happening around a shared meal. And again, um, Jesus is hanging out this week at this shared table, and it sounds like a beautiful thing, doesn't it? Jesus has been invited. He's there at this big shindig and you know he's got all these people around sounds like a beautiful thing except that I don't think that the Pharisee likes Jesus very much uh, I, I don't think he's a friend the truth is he, he probably didn't like Jesus that you know just because he's hosting Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that he's honoring Jesus and it doesn't necessarily mean that he was for Jesus let me back up that was a horrible for for Jesus yeah, that's better. So Simon the Pharisee, I don't want you to see him as a friendly, because I don't think he was a friendly, all right? I think he was kind of anti-Jesus. There's a chasm between the way Jesus viewed the world and the way this Pharisee views the world, and it's about to be exposed when someone breaks the barriers between the courtyard space and the dining space, which brings us to part two of our conversation, the party crasher. Luke 37 tells uh, five, I'm sorry, verse, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 37 tells us this. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, might circle that word, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And we're told that she lived a sinful life. That's all we're told. Um, if you go look at commentaries on this, they generally point to probably some type of sexual impropriety or sexual sin, and, and that they, you know, they speculate that that's what she's known for often. That would be the word that would be used. 
for someone like her. We're just told that she, she had a sinful life. And you're like, okay, this sounds weird. Well, it's about to get a lot weirder. Verse 38, she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And you think to yourself, well, I mean, that's weird to us in the 21st century, but probably not weird to them, is it, Brett? Really? Yeah, it's weird. I don't care who you are, that's weird. Somebody crying over your feet and pouring perfume on them and kissing your feet, I mean, that's just weird. And so there are a couple of questions that begin to arise as you think about how this whole thing unfolds. And one of the questions is, why is she crying on his feet? And the answer to that is that's the part that was accessible. Remember, you know, their feet go away from the table, and so she's there, and that's just the place that she can get to. His head and his shoulders would have been more toward the table. And so let's be clear here. She, she isn't shedding just one tear or two. You know, when, when I cry, and I'm, you've seen me cry, I, that's pretty easy for me to do. That all happened when I had kids. I, my heart went soft when I had kids. Now I see old yeller and I cry. You know, just movies make me cry, and... But when I cry, I typically, it's a tear or two. It's not, you know, blubbering usually. Um, But she is on the next level. I mean, she is coating his feet with her tears. There are a substantial amount of tears. She is significantly crying. We could even use the word sobbing. And, And so then she takes her hair and she uses it as a form of a towel to mop up her tears with her hair, and she starts to kiss the feet of Jesus, and then she breaks this alabaster perfume jar and pours this perfume on the feet of Jesus. And when you read this story, one of the thoughts that is inescapable is this, is how did she get in there? What is she doing? How did she get there? And again, she, she's likely been in the courtyard. I've, I've, I've taken, I put an arrow in this. She's probably one in the crowd. And she's looking and she's watching and she gets, I think she gets overcome. I, I think that she is so moved that, that she just, you know, she went to just watch from a distance. But when she saw Jesus, I think she's almost propelled. I think she couldn't help herself. And she moves and she crosses that threshold. She, she goes from this public private space into this private space. And it's weird. Now we're in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is going to tell the famous story of the prodigal son. And you know that story as well as I do. He he talks about this young man who takes this money, goes off, squanders it in a foreign land, spends all his inheritance. He ends up stinky. He's hungry. He decides to go back home. Jesus is telling this story, and he comes home, and the father welcomes him home, throws a party. You know the story. I think when we read that story in Luke chapter 15, we are under the impression that's the only time he told the story. And I think that it's a mistake to assume that Jesus just told that story one time. I think it's likely. I mean, I can tell you as a pastor, when I'm talking to people about Jesus, there are certain stories, there are certain illustrations that I will use over and over when I do the Jesus talk. It's the same things I use over and over to make a specific point to help people understand certain parts of the Jesus story. And I think Jesus, on numerous occasions, we don't know how many groups of people Jesus talked to, but there were many, and I think it was not uncommon for him to tell something like the the story of the prodigal son over and over again. And I think it's not a stretch to think 
that this woman has been somewhere where she has heard Jesus tell a story, something like the prodigal son story that paints the picture and helps her to see, oh my goodness, that's me. God loves me the way Jesus is talking about the, the father loving the son. And I think that she heard all of that, and it's possible that when she heard it, she started thinking to herself, you know, um, I, I've got to get to Jesus. Is it possible that maybe this woman who is weeping at the feet of Jesus has heard the story or one similar to it, and that she felt clean for the first time that she could ever remember? And it isn't a stretch to think, if I ever get a chance to thank him, if I ever get a chance to worship him, and then she hears that he is going to be in her town, and she hears that he's going to be in that house, and she just can't help herself. And she shows up, and she walks in the courtyard, and there he is. There he is. And I just think she couldn't help herself. She, she, she knew that she should stay in the group, but she breaks the barrier. She crosses the threshold, and there we find her at the feet of Jesus. Now, let's just make sure that we understand something here. This is not a COVID-friendly scene, all right? No masks going on. Uh, she's weeping, I would guess, uncontrollably. I don't know about you, but when, you, when I weep uncontrollably, there's snot involved, you know? I hate to put that picture out there, but, but this isn't COVID-friendly, okay? This is, kind of, this is kind of undignified. This is, um, you might even say, gross. She's, she's wetting his feet with her tears. She's blubbering. She lets her hair down. She's wiping his feet, pouring perfume. And you see this picture and you think, man, this is way over the top. You don't know the half of it. You see, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, and Jerusalem has been kind of quartered off, but if you were to go to Jerusalem today, in certain parts of the city, you would encounter women who are completely covered head to toe. Their head is covered, their hair is not visible. You can see maybe their face, more than likely just their, the top of their nose and their eyes. You don't see very much. And that's the way it would have been in Jesus' time. Not necessarily in, in Roman and Greek culture, but definitely in Palestine in the circles that Jesus moved in, most of the women probably were covered head to toe. In fact, um, when a man married a woman, he, the first time that he probably ever saw her hair was on his wedding night, okay? It was just, uh, it was not, it was, you just didn't see, a woman did not let her head get uncovered in public. It was considered somewhat scandalous. Um, in fact, I used this when I, 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 we recorded the sermon on Thursday and I was, I, I used this illustration and later I thought maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I, I'm gonna stand by it. I'm gonna use it this morning. It's, it's, it's scandalous for her to have uncovered her head to the point that it would be it would be similar to a woman taking her top off in public. I mean, you, if that happened, you would go, "Oh my goodness!" You know, that's just not supposed to happen. And here she is in this setting, and she uncovers her head, and her hair is down. It's just it's it's incredibly scandalous what she does. And I don't think for a second this goes unnoticed by anybody in the crowd. I think everybody at the table is thinking to themselves, "What in the world?" is she doing? Then she takes her hair and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. This is a very, very intimate picture. It, it isn't sexual. I don't mean sexual. I mean intimate. 
And Jesus does not push her away. He does not rebuff this worship. He doesn't snap at her and say, what are you doing? That's not what he does. He seems to receive her affection. He seems to receive her worship. And the host, Simon, is watching all this go down, and he's thinking to himself, okay, now I have all the information I need because I know all about this woman. We all know who she is. She's the sinful woman. She's got a reputation. I don't know what she's doing in my dining room, but she shouldn't even be here. I wouldn't even want her in my house. But he's watch, He's so intrigued by how Jesus is going to respond to her that I think he lets it unfold. I think he's letting Jesus hang himself. And he thinks to himself, we know who she is. Now we know something about who you are, Jesus, because if you were any kind of prophet, if you were any kind of holy man, you would be able to discern what kind of woman this is. In fact, I doubt Simon even looked at her as human. I think, I think Simon would have said, if you knew what it is that's touching you, you wouldn't let this happen. And so now Simon has, has just violated one of the unwritten rules of, of being around Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are some unwritten rules about being around Jesus. And just let me help you out in case you don't know what they are. The first one is if you're ever around Jesus, don't think anything negative because he knows what you're thinking, right? Simon misses that and he's thinking some negative things. And Jesus begins to talk about debt and debt forgiveness. That's part three of the story, debt forgiveness. Jesus tells a little story in response to what uh, the Simon is thinking. Simon doesn't say this out loud, but Jesus discerns what he's thinking, and he instantly launches into this teaching moment, and, and he's going to talk about these people that owe money, which means that just about everybody within the sound of my voice can relate to this, right? Because we've all owed money at some point or another. We've, we all know what it is to, to owe money on a house or a car. We all know what it is to, maybe, maybe you've owed money to an in-law, which is the worst kind of debt you can have. Maybe you, you've owed money to a, a, you know, on your student loans or something like that. Jesus is going to tell a story about people who are in debt and they can't pay it back. It's just a little two-verse story. We pick it up in verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now in the first century, you would not go to a, a lending institution. You would go to a lending person. You would go to them and you would say, I need X amount of dollars and I'll pay it back to you on, on this specific date. And so Jesus throws out two different amounts. One owes 50 denarii, the other owes 500. Just to put that in perspective, a denarius is about a day's pay. If you were a day laborer, if you were a, like a fig collector or you harvested grapes or you harvested grains and, and wheat and things like that, a day's wage would be one denarius. And so one guy owes 50. And just to put that in scale for you, think about two months pay with a couple of days off, few days off, that would be about 50 denarii. And so 500 would be about two years with the, the same scaled amount of days off. One owes 50, one owes 500, one's borrowed 500 silver coins, the other's borrowed 50. And, and I don't know if you've ever borrowed money and had trouble paying it back, but if you have, you, you kind of understand where these guys are. Neither of them can pay it back. And the money lender has a decision to make, and that is the second part of the parable, verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. And then he asks a question, now which of them will love him more. 
So can we just admit and agree together that this is bad business form? I mean, this is not, this is a bad business model. If your whole business is to loan money and then make money on the interest that you loan when people pay you back, and then you're forgiving the loans, you're not going to be a business long. And so, um, you know, when you go, when you pay some, when you borrow money from somebody and you can't pay it back, this is generally what would happen. Somebody would say, okay, then I'll take your land. Okay, I'll take your farm implements. Or it could get really bad and they could say, okay, I'll take your son as an indentured servant. I'll take your daughter and make her a slave in my house. And when you pay off the debt, and then there's going to be interest involved, and then you can buy out your son or your daughter from indentured servitude. And Jesus is telling this story, one owed a lot, one owed even more, and this moneylender forgives the debt, he absorbs the loss, which brings Jesus to a question for Simon. Simon, which one of these two who borrowed money is going to be more grateful? Only that's not how Jesus says it. The way Jesus says it is, which one will love him more? Which one will love him more? And Simon says, well, I guess the one that, that owed the larger financial debt. And Jesus said, you're right about this. And this all takes place as this woman is at Jesus' feet wiping her tears with her hair and pouring perfume on the feet of Jesus. And Simon says, so, you know, smart alecky, I, I would imagine. Simon basically says, okay, Jesus, what's your point? <laughs> you know, what are you trying to say? And Jesus says, here's the point. I walked into your house today, Simon, and you completely disrespected me. You have completely snubbed me as I've walked into your house. And you're hearing that and you think, okay, um, what are you talking about? I think Jesus would have said, you did not give me any of the common courtesies that someone would get when they came into someone's house. You see, in Palestine, if you were to walk into someone's house, the first thing that happens, almost in any home you walked into, they would remove your sandals, they would wash your feet. It's like a handshake, okay? It's just expected. The streets were dirty and nasty, your feet got dirty and nasty, and so it was just common courtesy. You washed the feet of your guests when they came in. Generally, they would have a servant who would do that. Jesus doesn't get that. You would also, you see this sometimes in the Middle East today when people greet each other, they kiss each other on each cheek. That was a, a very common thing in a way that you would greet someone in your home. And then sometimes, especially someone with the means that, that it appears Simon had, you would anoint your guest's head with oil. And Simon doesn't do any of the things. He omits all of these customs. And this woman who is weeping at the feet of Jesus is covering for Simon. She sees that Jesus has been dismissed. She sees that his feet haven't been washed. She assumes probably that his head has not been anointed. He hasn't been anointed. She assumes that he hasn't been kissed. And Jesus points all this out in these verses by contrasting Simon's lack of hospitality and this woman's overabundance of hospitality with some statements where he goes, you didn't do this, but she's done this. You didn't do this, but she's done this. Three times. Verse 44, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume 
on my feet. Simon, she has covered for you in every possible way that she could. She has welcomed me to this meal in ways that you did not. And I, I think what you would get from Simon is this kind of a smart-alecky response like, and? And he continues, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And it is here that we encounter a formula. Big forgiveness equals big love. Little forgiveness equals little love. I'm going to show you a picture. You know, we see pictures like this a lot. And I fear that what has happened for us in, an, in the digital age and in the media age and in the, the audiovisual media stimulated age that we live in, we see pictures like this and we've gotten to a place where this is not horrifying to us anymore. I think it's easy for us to see these pictures and at times to not even be moved, to see it, oh yeah, that's a picture of Jesus on the cross. No, that is our Savior who has been pierced and put on a cross and is bleeding profusely and he is dying for our sins. And without that, we are lost. And I think that what happens is we have become inoculated. We see pictures like this and it just doesn't even register. And you say something like, okay, Brett, I get it. You know, Jesus died for our sins. I get it. Which ones? And I would say all of them. And you would say, can you be more specific? And I think sometimes the way we, I've had people say this to me. Sometimes the way people approach their life and the way they approach their sin is, Brett, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't really do that much wrong. I mean, I'm not really that sinful. I mean, I know some people that sin like it's an Olympic sport. I'm not one of them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've got some stuff, but Brett, really in my heart of hearts, I really don't think that there's all that much that I need to be forgiven of. I mean, Brett, I'm really a pretty good person. And if in our heart of hearts, we think that our sins are small and that they are few, there is a very high probability that we will view our forgiveness as small, and we will not offer forgiveness on a large scale either. Little forgiveness equals little love. You say, okay, Brett, I'm just going to, you know, facetiously, you'd say, all right, I'm just going to go knock off a circle K, and I'm going to start a meth lab with it, and then I can confess, and, and Jesus will have died for this great big sin, and then I can, I can be forgiven of something big, and then maybe it'll be different. No, that's that's not what I'm, I'm trying to say. May I suggest that there's a better way? May I suggest that there's a better route? I want to lead you in an exercise this morning. And I don't do stuff like this very often, so I'm, when I do it, I hope that you will participate with me. But I'm going to read a list of sins or a list of shortcomings, crimes. I mean, I don't know how you would want to characterize it. But I'm just going to read a sentence. And even if you don't feel like you're guilty of the crime or the sin that I'm reading about, I'm going to ask you to respond. And what I'm going to ask you to respond with is this phrase. It's a phrase that you know. It's very familiar to you. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Okay, can we say that together? One, two, three. Forgive us our debts. Very good. Very good. So this comes out of a, the, when Jesus taught us to pray. Um, this little phrase, forgive us our debts. So I'm going to read something, and when I read it, I want us to respond together, forgive us our debts. Are you ready? <laughs> Are you sure you're ready? 
I don't know if you're ready. Okay, here we go. For living in one of the wealthiest civilizations in the world and always wanting more, forgive us our debts. There you go. For treasuring my stuff more than I treasure other people, forgive us our debts. For being capable and smart and treating as inferior those who are less capable and less smart, forgive us our debts. For sexual sins of the mind and the body, forgive us our debts. For being self-absorbed, forgive us our debts. For failing to speak words of encouragement to people who are in desperate need of words of encouragement, forgive us our debts. For minimizing my faults while amplifying the faults of others, forgive us our debts. For repeating the things that simply do not need to be repeated, forgive us our debts. For assuming pure motivation on my end while assuming and judging the motivations of others, forgive us our debts. Two more. For using my humor to make someone else seem small, forgive us our debts. For getting laughs at someone else's expense, forgive us our debts. Jesus came to live and die and to pay debts that were not his. They were yours and they were mine. And had Jesus not met us when he did, it is very likely that our life would have gone down a path that could very easily have ended in destruction. Jesus not only rescued us sinners from our past sins, but he arrested our future and likely changed our lives by keeping us away from things that might have just blown us up completely. Forgive us our debts. Big forgiveness equals big love. Little forgiveness equals little love. And when we're honest, when we really look inside and we see the darkness, really the only response we can have is, dear Jesus, please have mercy. Then we can experience what we're calling the fallout of forgiveness. Over time, after an encounter with Jesus, as you spend time with him, there comes this point where all of a sudden generosity seems more interesting than accumulation. As you spend time with Jesus, over time, you find yourself demanding less and encouraging more. Over time, as you spend time with Jesus, you find this air of superiority that you feel about yourself replaced by humility as you spend time around other people. You find yourself giving grace that you have received because you've been spending time with Jesus. This weeping woman, she's weeping at Jesus' feet, having been forgiven massively, and, and her love is way, way over the top. She has forgiven much, and she loves much. Simon the Pharisee doesn't even know how much he's been forgiven. And it shows in everything that he does. Jesus had deep, deep affection for this woman who is weeping at his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. But you know what? Jesus had deep affection and a deep love for Simon who, who completely snubbed him on the way in the door. Some of us get lost. We said this last week. Some of us get lost while being very, very bad. And others of us get lost while being very, very good. See, in Jesus' world, everybody is lost, everybody is loved, and everybody is invited to the table. 
Everybody is lost. Everybody is loved. Everybody is invited at the table. Pull up a chair. There is room for you at Jesus' table. I don't know who you are. I don't know what, where you are with Jesus necessarily, but if you're someone who has kept your distance and kept Jesus at arm's length, I'm here to tell you that Jesus has gone to great lengths to clear a space so that you could come spend some time with him. And if you have the guts to do it and spend some time with Jesus, he will change everything about your life. And all of a sudden, all this stuff that was important to you won't be nearly as important. Pursuing your greatness and your recognition won't be nearly as important as just worshiping Christ. Accumulating stuff won't be nearly as important as trying to give to somebody else. If you've never given your life to Christ, I'm here to tell you that, that Jesus went to a cross and was crucified to take your sin on his body so that you could be forgiven, so that you could experience a big forgiveness and therefore turn around and give a big love. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do it. For the rest of us, let's let this guide us this week. We have been changed by the death of Jesus. Let's make sure that the world knows it. Let's pray together. Father, we just want you to be honored this morning. We want you to be praised and glorified. And Lord, we see, I see myself in this woman, contrite, sinful, in desperate need of your forgiveness and completely lost if you do not rescue me. And Father, like her, I can, I can see myself wanting to be, I only wish I could be as undignified as her in demonstrating her love for you. She didn't care what anybody else thought. She was going to get to you. She was going to make sure that you knew just how much you meant to her. And so, Father, this morning we have come to worship you. And, Lord, it's my prayer that we would just be able to find even a smidgen of the love that this woman demonstrated and pour that out on you this morning. Father, we love you. We've come to worship you. We've come to thank you for forgiving us. Lord, if there's anyone in the room this morning that's never given their life to you, I pray that you would help them to see what this is about and what it absolutely is not about. This is about being forgiven. Clean slate. No sin too big. I can't run too far out of your reach. Your love is longer than any sin I commit. So, Father, we just honor you and worship you and pour ourselves out on you this morning in praise and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.